Thank you for listening to Power Corrupts. This season of Power Corrupts is ad-free, keeping us editorially independent, so we can unapologetically name and shame without having to worry about offending anyone who's paying the bills. Instead, we're asking you to help us keep the show going in one of two ways. First, you can order my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I study dictators, despots, and crooks, but this book goes beyond that to also look at petty tyrants, from homeowners associations to mid-level management. It draws on more than 500 interviews that I've conducted with some seriously unsavory people, but it also draws on the latest research in social science, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology to better understand power, corruption, and abuse. If you buy a copy, you can get access to an exclusive episode of Power Corrupts that isn't publicly available. Just go to my website, brianpkloss.com, that's Kloss with two A's, click on Corruptible, fill out the form, and you'll get a link sent to you with the exclusive episode. Alternatively, you can also support our work on Patreon by going to patreon.com powercorrupts. For a few dollars a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus content, uncut interviews, and much more. Thanks for listening and for making the show possible. You've probably heard that fireworks were invented in China. Around 200 BC, the earliest fireworks were created. And the origin story goes something like this. 2,200 years ago, someone in China accidentally tossed some bamboo onto a fire, and it created a pleasing effect. A thousand years later, an alchemist who was looking for an elixir to create eternal life accidentally created gunpowder. When it was packed into bamboo, fireworks were born. By the year 1200, China had invented rocket cannons. And with rockets flying high into the sky, a new tantalizing possibility was considered. Can humans reach space? The legend goes that the first astronaut was a Chinese man named Wan Hu, a curious man with plenty of enthusiasm for dreaming big, but perhaps not so much understanding of basic concepts of physics. The story goes that Wan decided that he would take advantage of China's newfound rocket technology and become the first man to launch himself into outer space on a one-way trip to the moon. His spaceship wasn't exactly Apollo 11 or a space shuttle. Instead, it was just a chair with 47 rockets attached to it as a means of propelling him to the heavens. And when the fuses were lit, apparently by 47 servants operating in unison, Juan was shot not into the heavens, but perhaps into heaven. When the smoke cleared, Juan and the chair did not exist. Today, there is a crater that is more than 30 miles wide and a mile deep on the surface of the moon, known as the Juan Hu Crater. So he made it in the end, sort of. Since then, humans have of course made it into outer space routinely, and man-made objects that are much bigger than chairs orbit around our planet at unimaginable speeds. And while science fiction has routinely grappled with what that means for our species, and shows like Star Wars have made futuristic space weapons a common sight on our screens, there's a question that we don't often discuss. What would war actually look like in outer space? And how close are we to finding out the answer to that question by accident? 
military and civilian space have always been together from the very beginning. This is Laura. I am Laura Grego. I am a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Laboratory for Nuclear Security and Policy in the Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And as she explains, as soon as humans got into space, we started thinking about how to use it as part of warfare, beginning with Sputnik. The first thing that many people in the rest of the world saw as a space activity, the first satellite, and people could see it going overhead, and it just basically all it did was beep. But that technology, for those who were of a more strategic mindset, they recognized the space launcher could be used instead to carry a nuclear weapon halfway across the globe and could hold an adversary at risk from across the world without having to fly bomber planes or commit troops. That This was really a new way of doing warfare. The space age very closely followed the nuclear age. So one of the earliest concerns, and this was a concern at the heights of the Cold War that was shared in both Moscow and Washington, was that countries would begin putting nuclear weapons in orbit and begin, uh, you know, using space as a place to base their nuclear capabilities. And that's Ankit. I'm Ankit Panda. I'm the Stanton Senior Fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, I'm also with Carnegie's New Space Project, where I work on space policy issues. And as he explains, this fear of nuclear weapons led to the only real ground rules that we have for governing space, most of which were established to stop nukes being launched from high above us, beyond Earth's atmosphere. So space is not entirely the Wild West, albeit compared to the international airspace, international waters on Earth, it is certainly an undergoverned domain. So there's certainly laws. So the Outer Space Treaty, so that's the bedrock. It says international law applies to space. It also has a few, you know, other strong prescriptions. You cannot station a nuclear weapon in space or on any celestial body. That's against the rules. You are not allowed to have military activity on other celestial bodies like the moon or Mars. You're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to use space to the benefit of all other users. You're not supposed to interfere. You know, it's a pretty rich treaty, but doesn't have a ton of specifics beyond those I've outlined. The Outer Space Treaty doesn't cover uh, space militarization writ large, or even things like missile defenses in space, which might be something that the United States looks at in the future. It was certainly something we looked at during the 1980s under the Reagan administration, for instance. All right, so there are a few rules, but it's also not exactly tightly regulated either. But before we get more into the details of what a space war would actually look like in 2021, let's take a step back and explore a bit more about what a space war might have looked like in the past, given some of the zany ideas for space weapons that people proposed throughout history, including some that got off the ground, so to speak. First, let's start with the giant German space mirror, which is not something I made up. According to research done by Ron Miller, In 1923, the German rocket scientist Hermann Oberth drew some inspiration from his time in the classroom, in which naughty school children would use mirrors to make classroom distractions. My space mirror, he wrote, is like the hand mirror that schoolboys use to flash circles of sunlight on the ceiling of the classroom. A sudden beam flashed on the teacher's face may bring unpleasant reactions. I was a school teacher long enough to have collected certain data on the subject. By the 1950s, Oberth was still hawking his proposal to anyone who would listen. 
For a mere $3 billion, which was a heck of a lot of money back then, Oberth said that he would like to build a 5,000 square mile mirror in outer space, which would then create a focused beam of sunlight about 2,000 miles wide, an enormous area. When someone pointed out that the resulting weapon would only create temperatures that were akin to the temperature at the equator, he quickly responded by proposing to double the size of his mirror, thus creating a focused sun death ray that would create temperatures of nearly 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And all you'd need was a mirror floating in space that was roughly the size of Massachusetts. So perhaps it wasn't the best idea. Then, in the 1960s, a concept known as Project Ichthys was proposed by two American scientists, Philip Bono and George C. Goldbaum. Their concept was simple enough, to develop a rocket capable of propelling a capsule filled with 1,200 U.S. Marines. If successful, it would be able to deploy a quick-strike force at a speed of 17,000 miles per hour, getting them to land anywhere on the planet within 45 minutes. And as you might have guessed, the idea was not successful. One weapon that was actually deployed, however, was a Soviet-developed space gun called the TP-82. To be clear, it wasn't actually a gun to shoot aliens or other astronauts, but rather was the standard-issue weapon given to cosmonauts from Russia in case they accidentally landed in the Siberian wilderness after returning to Earth. A cosmonaut raised this concern, that he would be no match for bears or wolves. So they developed this new gun that they could have with them to improve their odds of survival. Amazingly, the TP-82 gun was part of the standard issue equipment to Russian cosmonauts until 2007. Then, there's Project Thor. Remember how Ankit and Laura explained that the Outer Space Treaty is designed to try to stop nuclear weapons from being launched from space? Well, Project Thor was an ingenious proposal to sidestep that, creating a weapon that packed the destructive power of a weak nuclear weapon, while relying on much more primitive technology. The idea, and there's not really a better way to explain this, is basically to launch a telephone pole made out of tungsten, one of the densest metals on the planet, into space. It would be this hugely heavy object fitted with some fins to help make it easier to control for targeting purposes. And the idea was that you'd get it going super, super fast in orbit before launching it back onto a specific target on Earth. This has actually been seriously considered by the US military. A 2003 Air Force report suggested that this giant telephone pole of doom would ram into the ground at Mach 10, a speed of about 7,000 miles per hour. The impact, according to the Air Force assessment, would have the destructive power of about 25,000 pounds of TNT. Alright, so now that we've covered these absurd space weapons, it's time to come back a bit closer to reality. Because the reality is that we're actually facing much less far-fetched scenarios, but they're already realistic threats. 
So space weapons already exist. They're not the kinds of things that we might have imagined at, in the heyday of 20th century sci-fi, for instance, things like space lasers. Those just don't work for a variety of reasons, mostly related to physics, frankly. To understand where the threat really comes from, we have to think about what's actually in space. One of the big trends in space has been over the last 20 years or so, the main prayers in space are no longer nation states. That's been, I think, the fundamental revolution in space activity in the 21st century, is if you look at the number of objects that humans have placed in orbits, what we call satellites, many of those, uh, in fact, the overwhelming majority of those today are placed there and operated by private actors. And that's where the main gaps in governance today really lie, I think. So there's this hodgepodge of satellites up in space. About 2,700 active satellites are up far above whizzing around us all the time. And another 3,200 inactive satellites, basically space junk, are up there too. More on that in a bit. But when we're thinking about the stuff that still works, more than half of those satellites are used for commercial purposes. Communications, television, GPS, that sort of thing. In fact, the satellites we put into orbit enhance our lives here on Earth in just many different ways, from the GPS chips in our smartphones and our cars to cable television, satellite television, satellite communications. Space can do a lot for human welfare on Earth. Just over one in 10 satellites are explicitly designed for military use. But that doesn't mean that they're weapons. Instead, they usually just support military operations closer to home. Space has really been militarized since the beginning in the sense that space-based assets, you know, optical satellites, communication satellites have supported military operations here on Earth. Space is all about supporting what's on the ground. So there's, you know, you're not going to have an exclusive space war with things zipping around and people shooting at each other. So you might ask yourself, why is that? Why don't we have space weapons that are zipping around and firing lasers at each other, the way that our science fiction writers imagined throughout the 20th century? And there are a few answers to that question. But one of the biggest reasons is simply how much it costs to get anything up in space. Technology does march on, but there are always boundaries on that by physics. You can get better at engineering, but you're not going to change physics. To get into orbit, you have to be get going at extremely high speeds. So like 30 times the speed of a jet in order to maintain yourself in orbit. Otherwise, you'll fall out of it. So that's why you see these when you look at when you see what a space launcher looks like. That's why it's so incredibly powerful, because it has to push something really fast. In fact, when you see a picture of a, a launch vehicle, only the very tippy top is anything that is going to stay up in space. All of that energy is meant to just get a small thing, like one to three percent of the mass, going at a high enough speed in order to stay into space. So that's an enormous investment to get something up there. And you have to make a sort of a commensurate investment in energy to bring it back down or to bring it back down quickly. And you have to carry that fuel up with you the fuel that's going to bring you back down. So it just becomes more and more expensive. Like it costs around $15,000 a kilogram to launch into space. Laura says that the cost will eventually come down as more countries and companies get involved in space operations. But at $15,000 a kilogram, or about $7,000 per pound, it's ridiculously impractical. Heck, according to my admittedly absurd math, even if you could theoretically shoot a chair containing a human being, like Wan Hu, up into space, it would probably cost over a million bucks. When you start getting into bulky space weapons, the zeros get added on pretty fast.
But let's imagine that the cost does come down. Even then, there are still good reasons to keep your weapons on the ground. And the other thing is, once you put something into space, it is no longer under your sort of jurisdiction. It's not dug into a bunker. You're not able to protect it in the way that you would if it's on your territory. It's going around the Earth, and it's visible to you know most of the rest of the Earth. And so it can be targeted by your adversary more easily than if you held it close. Putting things in space often conveys a vulnerability to it. It's weird for us to think about stuff in space being vulnerable, but it really is. You can hide stuff in bunkers underground on Earth, but it's pretty impossible to hide a weapon in space. It's visible to everyone, and that means it can be targeted by anyone. That led me to wonder, is outer space an easier area for the problem of attribution? The idea of attribution, knowing where an attack came from, is a core issue in cyberspace. Because when a foreign adversary hacks you or goes after your infrastructure using digital weapons, it's relatively easy for those attackers to hide their true identity. As a result, you're sometimes unable to prove that North Korea was definitively behind a certain attack in cyberspace, even if you have a strong suspicion. In outer space, though, it's different. Some space weapons are launched from the Earth's surface, If you're going to launch something that runs into someone's satellite, it's going to be clearly attributable to you because it launched from your territory. Space launch is such a production. It isn't like, oh, I just moved my launcher over to this island and nobody knows whose it is. Those are traceable. I think the attribution problem there is rather small because U.S. space-based infrared satellites would be able to see those rocket boosters ignite on Earth and know exactly what country launched an attack on American satellites. So space weapons exist, and they're trackable partly because they're visible to everyone, and partly because many of them are ground-based. But even though we're not likely to have the sort of pew-pew laser ships flying around in orbit anytime soon, countries are starting to think more strategically about how to create more sophisticated military operations far above our heads. Before we came in, I will tell you, they didn't have such big plans for space. Now they have plans. When it comes to defending America, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. So important. We are going to have the Air Force and we are going to have the Space Force, separate but equal. Unless you lived in a cave for the last five years, you'd recognize that as the voice of former U.S. President Donald Trump who invoked the racist segregationist doctrine of separate but equal for some unknown reason while announcing the creation of a new Space Force. The Space Force idea was quickly panned, particularly because the logo for the new military branch looked very, very similar to the logo used for Starfleet in Star Trek. And yet, despite the mockery, most experts on space don't find the idea particularly out there. People have been making fun of Space Force and their ridiculous uniforms and the fact that they're the sixth branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. Uh, They are the smallest branch of the U.S. Armed Forces by a long shot. What Space Force does, I think, is 
pretty unexciting to most people. Uh, they're not flying around in starships, zapping things in orbit. They are mostly focused on surveillance, observation, missile tracking and warning, a lot of functions that used to be doled out to parts of the U.S. Air Force and other services. They do operate space-based assets, including surveillance platforms, potentially new U.S. counterspace capabilities that might come online uh, in the near term. But, you know, Space Force's overall role is really as a support mechanism to other parts of the U.S. armed forces. Uh, you know, in an actual high-intensity combat scenario on Earth, Space Force would really be supplementing what the other forces are doing. It's possible that in the future, the U.S. Space Force and similar branches of the military in other countries could actually be fighting each other in space. In fact, there are weapons that already exist, which have the primary objective of knocking out enemy satellites, for example. Once you're up close to someone else's satellite, there's lots of ways you can interfere with it. You can bump into it and set it spinning in the wrong direction, or you could break off its solar panels, or you could spray paint its sensors, or you could fry it with a burst of high-powered microwaves. There's lots of things you can do. So we call these co-orbital weapons. These are satellites uh, poorly understood because they're classified by their very nature. And the United States doesn't deploy these, but uh, Russia, China, potentially a few other countries do employ these kinds of capabilities in a conflict because of the benefits of space for military operations here on Earth, many military powers would look to destroy other powers' space objects. The United States, as it happens, is actually the most reliant on space for our military forces to operate in all kinds of environment on Earth. In 2007, China tested an anti-satellite weapon, something known as an ASAT. Here's what happened. One of their weather satellites was flying about 500 miles above the Earth. They launched something called a kinetic kill vehicle, flying in the opposite direction of the satellite. It created a head-on crash, sort of like the worst kind of collision you can imagine on the highway, except instead of going 60 miles per hour, these things were traveling around 18,000 miles per hour. The test successfully destroyed the weather satellite, putting China alongside the US, India, and Russia as countries that have successfully tested that kind of technology. But even though the test was successful in the sense that it destroyed its target, it had disastrous unintended consequences. Consequences that show the perils of any sort of military operations in space, even when it just comes to tests. China last Thursday succeeded in shooting down one of its own aging weather satellites with a medium-range ballistic missile fired from the ground. U.S. sensors tracked the satellite as it disappeared from its polar orbit 537 miles above the Earth and was reduced to hundreds of pieces of space debris after impact with a kill vehicle carried by the missile. The U.S. has lodged a formal diplomatic protest. Some of that debris is going to be in orbit for really the next decades, uh, you know, into the late 21st century. The issue of space debris is something that we rarely, if ever, hear about in the press. But it's a major threat. That's not solely a military issue. It's really the focus of a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. And it is really, I think, the number one long-term sustainability challenge for the sustained use of space by humanity into future generations. I think we're taking space for granted in many ways. And if we don't get our head around this debris problem and figure out a way to internationally address it, I think uh, you know we might be looking at uh, significant long-term costs that will make accessing space a lot more difficult, costly, and possibly impossible in certain orbits. Here's the problem. As explained, 
by the European Space Agency. Some 8,000 tonnes of space debris orbits the Earth, ranging from obsolete satellites to tiny flecks of paint. The United States tracks 23,000 objects larger than about 10 centimetres. ESA receives the data on these objects and analyzes them for any possible conjunctions with its functioning satellites. In 2016, astronaut Tim Peake tweeted a photo from inside the International Space Station, showing damage to one of the windows on board. The damage, which was just a 7mm crack, had been caused by a tiny speck of space junk, a fleck of paint, or something as small as a grain of sand. It may sound strange, but anything, no matter how tiny, can be deadly when it's traveling at 22,000 miles per hour. If a fleck of paint can crack an ultra-thick pane of space glass, imagine what kind of damage something the size of a brick could do. Now you begin to see why space debris of the kind that was created by China's decision to blow up that satellite could pose a serious challenge to the shared usage of space, where most objects are in a relatively narrow band in orbit. The problem is collisions are becoming more frequent. There are significant numbers of debris objects as small as 10 centimeters, 5 centimeters, even untrackable objects that can cause tremendous amounts of damage to other space objects. So space debris is basically anything up in space that you that's left over you can't control. So it can range from nuts and bolts that have just fallen off your satellite to flakes from flakes of paint to, especially when users weren't careful, they would leave a rocket stage up in orbit with a little bit of fuel left into it and it explodes. So then you end up with a whole bunch of small pieces. And for space debris, in fact, you know, the big pieces that you can see, you can steer around if you have the ability to steer your satellite, you can avoid running into a big thing. But smaller pieces can also be equally destructive to your valuable satellite. Some satellites cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It's something that's like the size of a marble could easily destroy a satellite in a collision because they're just going so fast. As I said, like 30 times the speed of a jet. So they could run into each other and get destroyed. So you don't want to have lots of little bitty pieces that you probably can't track very well because they're so small, but you'll have to avoid in order to stay safe. All of this sounds pretty bad, but wait until you hear about what can happen once a chain reaction of space debris begins. One of the concerns that yeah, a NASA scientist named Donald Kessler uh, studied and identified, and, and the syndrome is actually named for him, it's sometimes called Kessler syndrome or a collision cascade, is this idea that we get to a point where collisions begin happening with such a degree of frequency that the probability of additional collisions goes up exponentially. Because as collisions happen, they create more pieces, which then in turn collide with other pieces, other fragments, and other satellites, which in turn break up, creating even more pieces. And that's what what really is sort of the death knell for many orbits that we consider to be very valuable today for activities here on Earth. And so this isn't happening right now, although some people do say it's happening in very slow motion. Uh, collisions are happening really weekly and monthly. We just don't hear about them a lot because they're not major collisions. But if we don't do anything to really begin addressing this problem, forcing, for instance, companies to deorbit satellites after their lifespans are over, ensuring that companies behave responsibly when their satellites might potentially collide with those from other countries and other companies, we're really risking, I think, a long-term catastrophe that might ultimately deprive humanity the ability to use space as a resource to better life here on Earth. 
So that's a cascading problem. Like once you have a certain amount, those pieces are going to hit other things and those things will break into smaller pieces and become things that can hit other things. So once you get to that point, you don't even have to break anything up anymore. It will just sort of sustain itself by things running into other things. This is one of those issues where you just probably never think about it, unless you're an expert like Ankit or Laura. But there are plenty of smart people who are trying to figure it out. For example, I didn't know, and I'm guessing you probably didn't either, that there's a whole sector of people working on space traffic management, sort of like setting up a traffic light system for space that directs satellites and tries to avoid the cascading debris problem. We manage traffic here on Earth in our cities uh, to ensure that accidents are not very common, that pedestrians and humans and life is mostly able to coexist with things like cars. And in space, uh, similar principles don't really exist at the international level, which is a big problem. Right now, for instance, if a SpaceX satellite is about to collide with, let's say, a Chinese satellite, the way that that is addressed is, first of all, you know, there's a conjunction analysis done where the two sides will come up with probably very different numbers for what the probability of a collision is, which is another related problem that, you know, people can't really agree on the risk of collisions in orbit just because the complexity of understanding these orbital dynamics and understanding the probability of collisions is not really straightforward. Uh, But really what happens in a lot of these cases is, you know, somebody picks up the phone and calls the other side and says, hey, can you guys move your satellite? Otherwise, we're worried about a collision. And then the other side might come back and ask them to move their satellite because ultimately moving a satellite can reduce its lifespan because they have to ultimately expend some fuel to make that orbital adjustment. So you've got a sort of high-stakes game of chicken happening in orbit. Whoever blinks first makes their satellite lose some of its lifespan. But if neither side blinks, then many more satellites could get destroyed, rendering significant chunks of low-Earth orbit impossible to operate in for decades or centuries to come. And nobody is really in charge of regulating the problem. So it's done in a largely ad hoc manner. What could possibly go wrong? The solutions to this problem sound like something out of a science fiction writer's wildest imagination. But they're real technologies that are being tested as we speak. There are experiments being done with satellite nets, which are exactly what they sound like, just up in outer space. Or with harpoons, giant foam balls that could run into a satellite and push it out away from the Earth's orbit strategically targeted puffs of air that could knock satellites off course, even robotic arms that stretch like tentacles out into the blackness to collect as much debris as possible. But the problem is that the kinds of debris that are up there vary widely. Some are enormous chunks of sharp metal, while others are just bits of fabric or marble-sized chunks. So how can you design something that collects everything? You know, you're talking about a set of technologies known as active debris removal, uh, which is really an important part of this space sustainability conversation. Uh, These technologies are still pretty early in their developmental lifespan. There are a few companies, for instance, Astroscale in Japan. Uh, Northrop Grumman's actually been working on life extension vehicles for satellites where a new satellite is launched that latches onto an older satellite that's running out of fuel and then helps that satellite extend its life, which is, again, positive for space sustainability. But these technologies, you know, ultimately, I think, um, have a long way to go. 
go. And they really need regulatory support and international cooperative support from the major space players in order to be actually useful. The ultimate answer, unfortunately, is that space debris removal will never be as good a solution as the ultimate fix, not leaving space junk in orbit in the first place. Sadly, it doesn't look like that's going to be an option anytime soon, because the number of satellites in orbit is rapidly increasing. You know, your listeners have probably heard of SpaceX's mega constellation known as Starlink, uh, which provides internet to people here on Earth, and that's a valuable service. But these mega constellations now are really starting to pick up interest. China is planning on mega constellations. Other countries, the European, South Korea even is talking about mega constellations. And these will simply increase the volume of satellites uh, in orbit significantly. And without traffic management, uh, we're just going to have more and more of these incidents where collisions are likely, and maybe they sometimes happen and other times. Times we get lucky and somebody does pick up the phone and is willing to move their satellite out of the way. I hadn't heard of Starlink, by the way, until one night when I was walking alone in rural England, and I looked up to admire the stars above, as I often do on clear nights. But this time, I did a double take. There was a line of dozens of bright pricks of light in the sky, all moving rapidly in a perfectly straight line. Now, if you've never seen this, Let me tell you, it is absurdly unnerving. I literally did that thing you sometimes see in films where you rub your eyes to make sure that you're not seeing things. But there was, of course, a perfectly reasonable explanation. It was a launch of Starlink satellites, which move like that as they're being deployed into position. SpaceX is planning as many as 12,000 satellites as part of these mega constellations. Blue Origin might add 3,000 more. Keep in mind, in early 2020, there were only about 2,500 active satellites in the skies overhead. Astronomers have objected to these large numbers of additional satellites being put in place, partly because they're messing up the ability to accurately scan the skies due to the reflected light from the satellites, and partly because they have the potential to overcrowd space with disastrous consequences. And this is where we return to the military dimension. What happens if a SpaceX satellite collides with an American or a Chinese military satellite? Will they know that it's an accident? What if a space debris removal vehicle is being tested, but a foreign adversary mistakenly thinks it's a weapons test? That is one of the concerns that a lot of countries have about active debris removal technologies. How do you characterize what is a peaceful active debris removal activity versus a co-orbital anti-satellite weapon? Like you said, I mean, putting a net around a satellite and forcibly deorbiting it can be a good Samaritan act of space cleanup, or it can be perceived as an attack under certain circumstances. The point is that there's plenty of scope for miscalculation in a place where the stakes are extremely high. Knocking out GPS satellites wouldn't just be inconvenient for your ability to use Google Maps or Strava. If you knock out enough military satellites that are used for GPS operations or communications, you could actually cripple armies back here down on Earth. That's why some strategists have suggested that if China and the US ever were to go to war, God forbid, that anti-satellite weapons would be one of the first offensive attacks. So it's clear that the world would be better off if everyone just cooled it for a bit when it comes to space. But instead, the opposite is happening. 
There's new concern tonight about China's military capabilities amid a report the country recently tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile. CNN's Brian Todd is working the story for us. So, Brian, what are you finding out? Well, n- missile experts are worried tonight about China's new missile capability. There's a new report indicating China could soon be able to deploy a nuclear-tipped missile that U.S. defenses would find much harder to detect. In October 2021, reports out of Washington suggested that China had developed a new hypersonic missile. It's a complicated weapon system, but thankfully, we've got two experts who can help us make sense of it and what it means. So let me just describe, though, what what China did demonstrate. Uh, This is an old Cold War concept that the Soviet Union deployed in the 70s and late 60s, known as a fractional orbital bombardment system. Uh, So you might recall at the beginning of the podcast, I said that the Outer Space Treaty doesn't allow for nuclear weapons to be placed into orbit. So why would the Soviet Union develop then an orbital bombardment system, which was reliant on nuclear weapons delivery? Uh, Well, the answer to that is in that F, the fractional part. So the Soviet Union and actually the U.S. agreed with this legal interpretation of the Outer Space Treaty, basically argued that because this kind of a weapon system would only place a nuclear weapon into an orbit before a complete revolution of the Earth was completed, it didn't actually count as an orbital nuclear weapon. That's right. It's a weapon based on a technicality. It doesn't count as a nuclear weapon in space, they argue, because it's not in space for a full rotation of the Earth. And that's one way that this weapon is different from an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile, which is the normal way to shoot a nuclear weapon halfway across the world. So a normal intercontinental ballistic missile is something that just like you get something going up at high speed, you aim it at basically for a long distance, you aim it at about 22 degrees and it goes up into space and it lands down on your adversary halfway around the world. It helps to understand that ballistic missiles are often very similar, albeit they fly on a suborbital trajectory. They never actually insert their payloads into orbit. Ballistic missiles do actually elevate their payloads outside the Earth's atmosphere, after which they sort of hurtle back down, propelled by gravity towards their eventual targets. If you think of like throwing a baseball or a rock, it goes up and it goes down and it's sort of pretty straightforward. And that's today how most missile-based nuclear weapons would be delivered. The new hypersonic missile, the one that China just tested, is different. Instead of throwing it up and having it come down, you'd have it go up and you'd have it cruise in orbit for a little while and then deorbit. And the reason you would do that is, well, a couplefold. One is you can go further, if you can't quite get your missile to go as far as you wanted to do, it would be able to get you to kind of go further, but it also could come from an unexpected direction. The advantage of this weapon is really to cope with missile defenses. Uh, The way the U.S. does missile defense today is we have a bunch of radars that mostly point north uh, because that's where the shortest range from Russia, China, North Korea is to the U.S. homeland. From all those countries, any ICBM, any intercontinental range ballistic missile would fly the shortest flight path over the North Pole. What the Chinese test does is it temporarily places a nuclear weapon on a hypersonic glider, which I'll get to in a moment, into orbit and flies around the South Pole. And effectively, that means that U.S. missile defenses just don't have any shot at taking this out simply because they don't exist in the southern United States and they're not facing towards the South Pacific and South America. What Ankit just mentioned, the hypersonic glide vehicle, refers basically to something a bit like a space plane. It goes up into orbit goes out of orbit, and then glides back to Earth at a precise location, a precise target. But what this would mean is that at some point in that orbit, the hypersonic glider would deorbit itself. It would sort of fire a small rocket engine that would push it back towards the Earth. And after it deorbits, it would glide towards its eventual target to deliver a nuclear weapon. 
As the arms control expert Jeffrey Lewis put it in a pithy tweet, China just used a rocket to put a space plane in orbit, and the space plane glided back to Earth. Orbital bombardment is the same concept, except you put a nuclear weapon on the glider and you don't bother with the landing gear. He then added a more profound thought about what this all means. Quote, This is how arms races work. We put a missile defense in Alaska. China builds an orbital bombardment system to come up over the South Pole. It will go on like this, at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars. A forever race with no finish line. Ever since humans could imagine going into space, even since the days of the legendary Wan Hu, we've thought about how to use space as part of warfare. As of 2021, there haven't been any major conflicts in outer space, knock on wood. But most experts believe that the continued crowding and militarization of space makes the likelihood of a conflict or an accident that spirals into a conflict far more likely. So while we may not see X-wings or starships flying around shooting lasers anytime soon, the largely ungoverned area that is outer space will nonetheless be a key battleground in any wars of the 21st century. That's cause for concern, surely, but there's one thing that we can all be thankful for. Even with modern technology, nobody is going to be building a giant space mirror anytime soon. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode thought-provoking, please rate and review Power Corrupts wherever you listen to podcasts, or post about us on social media. It really helps others find out about the show. And please consider supporting our work by buying a book that will hopefully make you see the world a bit differently. Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which you can pick up wherever you buy books. Or you can support us at patreon.com slash powercorrupts, where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content for just a few dollars a month. This episode is written and narrated by me, Brian Kloss. The executive producer was George McDonough, who also did the sound editing. The Power Corrupts theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. And a special thanks to Pietro Guna and Crisula Politi, who helped me research this episode. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.